Carl von Clausewitz described war as politics by other means. In many ways, the reverse could be said, with the modern state in the West seemingly arrayed against its own citizens in a constant battle of misdirection and interference in their lives. Tom Kaczynski, author of Surviving the Fall of America and former town manager of Jackman, Maine, has actually run for political office in an attempt to address some of these problems. Tonight, he gives us an insider glimpse into how the system actually works, what we can expect going forward, and some potential solutions to what he sees as an almost inevitable decline of a once great society. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, tonight we have a very special guest, Tom Kaczynski, and my co-host Hans is also here to join the discussion. Uh, Tom, um, I've been uh, familiar with you for a few years, and actually our mutual friend Lamprey was uh, instrumental in connecting us. And you have a lot, as always, to, to discuss and to talk about, but for people who might not be familiar with you, I just wanted to introduce you and have yourself introduce yourself uh, on the basis that you've actually run for political office. We talk about politics on the show, but we've never actually engaged on such a direct level. And I was curious if you could tell us about your experiences doing that. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. I'd love to be on the show and to talk with you guys tonight. Um, I've done a lot. I've been a town manager before, which is an unelected office, kind of like an appointed mayor, but I've actually run for state rep before. I've been on various Republican committees. I even had a supportive campaign for president once, but I've been uh, a candidate with my name on the line for office before um, in the state of Pennsylvania. Actually, I ran once the 14th uh, legislative district, I think it was. No, I think it was the 16th. It's been a few years, so you have to forgive me for not remembering it. But yeah, the thing people don't understand about politics is that activists think it's about ideology. But politicians know it's about uh, the the ability to enter into patronage networks. And that while people get excited about issues, the cost of running campaigns is so high that people look for the, per, uh, the permanent interest that bankroll those. And I, and I think in some ways you see the result of that in the oligarchy we see at the national level and basically how national politics have reshaped local politics. To the point where for many people it's a zero-sum game so we can definitely talk about the reasons why that happens and maybe think about some structural reforms that could uh change the way that operates although like most things you have to reconsider where you allow money and you end up with the irony where if you want to have more choice you actually sometimes have to constrain freedoms which is something that uh people traditionally on the right have scoffed at but that is an interesting developing 
area of thought as we look at how collectivism is coming into the new populist right. Do you think politics is the vehicle for the little person today, or was it never for the little person? After 2020, I think a lot of people started questioning voting, for example. Where do you think the role of voting and democracy is in getting what people on the dissident right or however you want to put yourself, how do you go about getting what you want? Well, it isn't politics. I mean, politics is useful as a means of putting ideas out there, as a means of building organization and connection. But uh, in terms of what we deal with now, the reality is elections are fixed in 10 different ways. You know, I mean, they're fixed in the terms of the cost of entry. They're fixed in terms of the media access. You know, the single most important thing you would learn in a campaign is name recognition. Why did Donald Trump win? Well, because everyone knew who he was. All other things being equal, people will vote for the name they know. So when you look at how people want to change that, if you are unhappy with the political system as is, I would suggest that taking what the system offers you is a very poor way to try to change that system. And that, you know, people say, I think rightly, that uh, politics is downstream of culture. And I would argue culture is actually downstream of faith or religion. And if you look at politics, you know, take the old Clausewitz axiom that politics is war by other means. It's the willingness to impose will and the willingness to push your ideas on others that has shown itself to be successful. We can laugh at the woke revolution that's been funded by, you know, elite causes to, uh, you know, limit and constrain people in ways that insert states between families and individuals. But the truth is, in a time when they have shown belief and zeal, the fact that they're provably insane has served as no impediment to their success. And I think uh, a deeper understanding of psychology and culture, how systems are built, which gets away from law, which is just a protective tool, as we've seen in how law enforcement, look at uh, Christopher Ray and the FBI as an example, is just serving to protect certain people. So, yeah, I, I would not recommend people to get involved in politics. I mean, at this point, uh, I see the Democrats as the party of the insane and the Republicans as the party of false promises. I think many people share that understanding, um, but there is no easy answer. And the only thing I would argue the American government does particularly well is it interferes with the ability of well-meaning logical dissidents to change the system against the interests of those who are responsible for the corruption and graft that is ultimately uh, bringing our empire, such as it is now, down the sort of path that Rome walked so many years ago. What are the, uh, well, I'm curious, you have a background in, in the state of Maine. What are the politics like uh, from your perspective uh, within Maine? How does Maine actually function? Um, you know, what, what, is, what is the small town sort of day-to-day -day political management of a, of a state like Maine, which is uh, pretty divorced from, you know, the, for the most part, the wider national uh, conversation, the wider national economy in a lot of ways, Maine really is sort of um, sort of an outlier state for the most part. Yeah, that's a good question, especially where I live. I'm up in Aristotle County, which if you can picture a map of the United States, is the very tippy top northeast. So New England in general had a system that worked pretty well called the town meeting system. And what it basically meant was that once 
a year, most smaller towns would gather and they would have either a select board, um, which was usually three to five people, uh, a mayor or a town manager, like I used to be, would submit a budget where the town would get together and an acclamation of the majority of the people who were gathered who were legal residents of the town would vote uh, by line item on the individual items. And that kind of gets to the old New England system and what really worked well, but what is starting to go away, which was it was a consensus-based system based on localism. And what is happening in New England really is that the imposition, and in Maine specifically, the imposition of money coming from without, from NGOs as uh, Senate races, uh, much uh, like Susan Collins's, uh, and uh, House races are nationalized where every seat matters. You see the same sort of politics coming up here where the lines are hardening between left and right. Uh, to give you an example from a few years ago, for instance, um, a, a policy was before the state house in Augusta where they wanted to ban female circumcision, which, you know, for those can't imagine it. That's a pretty gruesome procedure. And, you know, historically, Democrats would have presented themselves as the party of protecting women's rights. But because of the growing Somali population imported into Maine largely during the campaign, uh, during the, uh, excuse me, the presidency of George W. Bush, they didn't want to risk offending them. And so if you can imagine sort of the worst strands of white liberalism, that is taking over the state with increasing speed because of the money that's basically coming from Boston into Portland. And Maine, much like states like Pennsylvania, is a state that's bifurcated between a West Virginia part and a Massachusetts part. And so what's ended up happening is that there still are the remnants of the old system, especially since Maine, at least a year or two ago, was the oldest state in America. But what you see is people who've migrated here um, in the post-COVID era, many of whom came because they wanted to be in a more open place, are now seeing the politics regularized. And I, and I think that's the larger story, that the national political scene is, is something that local politics struggle to escape. And I would argue even global politics struggles to escape, that the whole world gets caught up in the drama of American political cycles, which is sort of crazy and that we have this um i i think clarifying division that's happening between the two sort of sides although i would argue that the republican party is an inauthentic representation of the let's call the nationalist localist forces that are fighting sort of these globalizing centralizing forces that we see enacted all around the world including in the state of maine what what is the republican party up to in maine these days there's been you know, sort of uh, proclamations uh, for years, particularly starting with uh, with Trump nearly winning the state uh, twice. Um, do they have a wider plan to actually somehow take the state back? I mean, if you go back to the Gilded Age, you know, Maine was, uh, although small in population, was like the rest of New England, it was a stalwart Republican stronghold. Then it became sort of a a, uh, a a working man's democratic stronghold and, and a fisherman's democratic stronghold, and now it's divorced from a lot of that. What is the Republican Party up to in Maine, and are they actually, you know, are they actually as ridiculous in many ways as the Republicans in in most of the country? I would argue that they are. Um, you know, Paul LePage is who they had hung their hat on pretty strongly. 
couple other people up here. Eric Brahe was another person. But there is a strong streak of independent uh, thinking in Maine. Maine has an independent senator, Angus King, previous governor mm-hmm. here, although he votes for the Democrats regularly. Um, I actually knew the guy back in the day, and he's a much more competent politician than Susie Collins, at least when it comes to retail politics. Her, I mean, if you don't understand Maine politics, Susan Graham is to the Maine shipyards what Lindsey Graham is to South Carolina defense contractors, and that's why she wins. Uh, places like the Bath Industrial Works, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, roles that were played. And I, and I think actually Maine kind of was more commonsensical if you go back maybe to the time of George Mitchell, you know, in the 80s and 90s, because of the large military presence, you had lowering Air Force Base and things that closed down. But mm-hmm. at this point, there is a libertarian streak uh, that's pretty strong in New England Republican politics. I think most people here kind of have a live and let live. Um, philosophy, probably a function of the fact that we're still um, relatively a very homogeneous state. I think Maine, last I checked, was 93% white, and it's yeah. kind of no thing to stay that way, but it's also the one of the uh, four least religious states in America, which are, you know, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts. We live in the sort of post, uh, what do you call it, Puritan collapse of mm-hmm. the idea of the gospel of good works, right, the thing that led to the Civil War in a lot of ways up here. So the modern Maine Republican Party is a declining institution that has a lot of power in certain counties, but the population waiting, being such as it is with population growing fast in Lewiston, Portland, and in places like York County in the Southeast, make it very, very difficult for the Republicans to compete. And the introduction of ranked choice voting, which came in uh, after Janet Mills became the governor up here, has been directly responsible for the defeat of otherwise viable Republican candidates. Um, now, will this state be a state that's contested? I mean, yeah, in 2020, it was contested. Um, there are people up here who believe, not without cause, uh, given the sort of political hijinks of people being bussed in from Massachusetts to all sorts of places, that maybe Trump performed better here. But I would say in the medium to long term that... You know, a lot of the people in New England who would have been maybe voting Republicans got run out during the COVID situation because the draconian laws that were put in, you know, the people um, more commonly raised about, like uh, Gretchen Whitmer put in in Michigan, were also in effect here. So a lot of the more competent people left, and specifically in the state of Maine, they were they took away religious exemptions for vaccination in the schools. So a lot of your Christian base left. Although interestingly enough, we picked up a bunch of Amish people who've come from New York and other points. So there is a little bit of counterbalance, but as far as I am aware, there has not been the sort of effort that existed in places like Pennsylvania to turn those people into votes. Um, So I would anticipate that Maine will probably be a more moderate state that won't be ever quite as bad as a Connecticut, but it's certainly going down that line, as I believe uh, New Hampshire is as well, because I lived there for three or four years. So, I mean, at this point, people are voting with their feet, and despite the fact that New England is very homogenous, in fact, probably because of the fact that New England is very homogenous, once you get, you know, the, the old joke here is if you live north of 90 and, uh, 
west of 95, and then you're, you're in the actual parts of New England. But you would find that people are still very nice. They don't understand what all the fuss is about. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book about this. And I'm actually saying the bet I made coming up here versus going down south was that, that the political system at the national level would collapse before the political stupidity at the local level could undo the demography. But I think I was probably wrong about that because we're having this long, drawn-out demise. And, and that main is not, um, you know, separate from because right now all the young kids come up here even if they want to stay here they leave the minimum wage in Maine is fifteen dollars which actually works for the people who can live but the problem is the job that pays eight dollars and a job that pays fifteen dollars work about the same so everyone's stuck making the same wage and we're all sort of just in this milieu of poverty where we make enough to kind of survive but not too much more and in that sense Maine is kind of a model for the sort of thing you see the world economic forum and certain other thinkers talk about would you say that Maine um, has not received a lot of investment uh, over the last, let's say, four or five decades? Is it like Connecticut? Is it like New Hampshire, Western Massachusetts, where it's basically you know, received very little in terms of, of infrastructure investment, private business investment? Um, any kind of, you know, even just the major social services, uh, widespread sort of um, what's called social capital collapse. Has Maine experienced a lot of that or is it somehow maintained itself, unlike you know, maybe Western Massachusetts or um, inner Connecticut? Well, if you want to talk about Maine's economy and how it had to transition, you really have to go to the 80s and 90s and the Internet coming up. Maine's one of Maine's primary industries is the logging. Another primary mm -hmm. industry is building. So the, the shutdown of the various bases and the effort to shrink the military after the Cold War, and coupled with the loss of the paper economy, was devastating to the state in terms of the mill jobs that were lost. It sent a great number of people who were living industrial lifestyles away. Now, the people who stayed in Maine, the one thing that Maine has that has kind of hidden these problems is Maine at least until relatively recently, didn't have a large transient population. Uh, wealth is somewhat generational here, especially up where I live in Orchard County and in rural areas of Maine. So a lot of people owned their properties outright. So that defrayed some of the costs. But in the last few years, we've seen a massive increase in electrical costs, despite the fact we actually import a lot of our electricity from Quebec from the uh, huge hydro plants there. So it's all markup if you begin to understand how the sort of corrupt economics of it works. Actually, Janet Mills' brother, I think, if I remember right, is on the board of the uh, Utilities Commission. So it's straight up nepotism. And if you look at that, that's just one more example how costs and the squeeze are getting higher. But in terms of good economic opportunities in the state of Maine, um, they are few and far between outside the Portland area where People are trying to make it into a little Boston, but they have an incredible shortage of housing where rents down there are running like $2,000 a month. And the average income, I believe, isn't much above uh, 50 or 60 grand in that area, which, you know, except for people who bring their own revenue, really shuts down opportunities. So you see a net uh, departure of young people. Now, in the remote economy, 
Uh, the one upside that has helped me a little bit lately is people have moved here for the relatively affordable um, cost of living um, with the uh, decent education system as attractive as safety issues, you know, which, you know, however you want to look at it, can be a proxy for who you're living around. And that has brought some money in here, and that has built a little bit of a boom. Like if you were, for instance, if you're a trades guy and you want to make a good living, um, there's a desperate need for people in those uh, fields, electricians, plumbers, and whatnot. But there really isn't a lot of people going down those roads and how much, you know, that system can sustain in terms of that. We don't have the large industrial interest other than a few paper mills sitting around, uh, the back iron works, the skittery yards. Um, although it, it will be interesting because Maine having a powerful senator on that committee and the fact that the recent uh, Naval Intelligence Report came out saying how much we are dwarfed in terms of shipping ability uh, that China has. I, I do think there's a decent possibility, and I know there's been some efforts in this direction to increase that uh, development here. So that's something that could be a growth industry in the midterm. But uh, in, in terms of other things, um, you just don't see a lot of that up here. You mentioned New Hampshire. Any thoughts on the Free State Project? Well, Keene is a fun place to visit. I mean, they run around throwing coins in meters. <laughs> so, I mean, I, Keene is, is, for those who don't know, Keene is the heart of where the Free State Project is. And my, my enduring memory of the place was going to a gas station where they locked the bathroom during the day because too many meth junkies were um, getting high to the point where they were ODing in there. I, I wish I was making it up because New Hampshire looks really nice on the outside, and it has some really great people. Uh, people go there because they think there's a lot of freedom, but as someone who lives there, what it really is is old people not wanting to pay taxes, although they pay incredible property taxes there. So, I mean, I think that there is a streak of that, of which the state is understandably proud. Um, however, I fear that the reality is, thanks to Nashua, Manchester, places like that, in the aggregate, New Hampshire is a Massachusetts suburb at this point for commuters who vote Republican and who are pissed off at Charlie Baker. Um, and that while you have these interesting sort of streaks, one of the big failures of the Free State Project was New Hampshireites do not like being told what to do. And even when people tell them we don't want you to be told what to do, it's sort of a paradox, but people didn't like that either. So I think they struggled to get traction there and uh i mean i guess you can see the sort of you know paradox instead of having you know a libertarian collective so uh, certainly good conversations good people fun town to visit but in general as much as i enjoy that region um it ends up being kind of a costly sort of big utopia for people who more have the money to play up politics and their ideas versus anyone who's actually making a difference that's very interesting. I've heard you talk about the different regions of the United States, and obviously our audience, I'm going to assume, is mostly American, and so this is directed at them. But if they were to want to move or relocate from, let's say, a big city to another location or, or just a different state that has a, a different political climate and set of opportunities and constraints on their life, uh, what regions do you think within the United States would you, would give you the most hope and then what regions do you think give you the most concern 
It's a hard question to answer because it's so dependent upon the particulars of the situation. But I'll answer you indirectly by saying the places I find interesting and that I find to be the safest and most locally capable of living. And I say this as someone who's actually planning on immigrating from the U.S. in the coming years. So um, sort of impartiality. Northern New England, which is to say Vermont and Hampshire Maine, gives you the promise of safety, um, a good demography, um, interesting people you can gather around, and the reality that state pressure up until COVID really hadn't been super high. So it's a good culture. It's a high education culture. It has a sort of collectivist sense, which under the right leadership could be very good. Um, but it's it's prone to following bad politics and making dumb decisions and at some point, it will be overrun. So Appalachia, I'm a big fan of the area around uh, eastern Kentucky, southern West Virginia. Um, parts of West or of Virginia are beautiful, but that state's got problems. Um, eastern Tennessee, I think those are rugged people who know how to live close to the land. I don't like the Oak Ridge uh, laboratories there, and I don't like how many government projects go in there. But I do think if you were trying to live apart from people and you are self-sufficient, which I highly, highly recommend because who knows when uh, political dissonance is going to become an actual crime in this country. I think those are very good places to live. Um, I know people who are very fond of living in the upper Midwest, like your North Dakota, South Dakota, a lot of economic opportunity um, probably will come back to at some point, even though you have um, people like Biden in there at some point, the war push of NATO is going to require them to develop that more. So um, not where I'd want to live because I like hills and fresh water, but there are opportunities. And I went up to the readout. I checked it out. I was in Idaho and uh, up in uh, eastern Washington, Montana, those sorts of ways. Um, an interesting place, very well-prepared people, um, beautiful. One thing I worry about there is schools coming in, like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They put in a bunch of colleges there. You can see how they always go for the kids. Um, you know, and in Idaho, it's a good example of it. You have... Up until recently, a Republican leadership there that looked at the economic benefits of Californians coming in, never minding that they were displacing the people who lived there. I knew a family very well who lived there, who ended up having to sell their property and leave to uh, go to North Dakota because they couldn't afford to live there anymore. And even though they financially did very well, one wonders what the chase of money and flight is going to do to states like that, much like it did Colorado and some parts of Wyoming. Um, but I, I find the West is very much... Uh, individualist because it doesn't have a history in the same sort of way that the the east or you know places east of the mississippi river in general and i and i think for the days ahead that it's important to look at what sort of collective group you bring yourself into but the problem is we are now in a low trust time and that makes living anywhere difficult but you asked where i wouldn't live where i wouldn't live is i wouldn't live in a major city i definitely wouldn't live in the mid-atlantic region i know it very well he would not want to do there. And I think a lot of people are going to Florida and Texas feeling really good about those things. Texas's fundamental demography is on the same path that California was. I think that a lot of people are going to be surprised and disappointed by how that develops. Um, but we'll see what happens in that case. I, I think, you know, from a historical perspective, in a time of troubles, what do people do? They head for the hills. And that's the advice I would give to people. Live in places of low population density with access to natural resources, functioning local economies, hopefully functional local electric production. And just in case things get funny or if you decide to 
exist outside the system because the reality is we don't know what will be the thought crimes of the future, but people like us tend to be the ones who tend to touch those uh, tripwires first. Great. Now, you also mentioned you were considering leaving the country. Did I hear that right? Hopefully. I'm hoping to get out next year. Do you want to disclose where you're thinking or maybe talk about why you want to leave? Oh, let's do both. Um, why do I want to leave? Um, we'll get into this more later in the show because I know we're going to talk about it. But I, I think beyond the sort of political disputes that are happening, the larger issue, and uh, I wrote a book on this recently called Behold the Beast System, is going to be the push between the sort of collectivist transhuman vision of technology. I mean, it's interesting. Just today, uh, Elon Musk launched XAI. And when you start to really study the technologies that are existent out there, you find that the ability to uh, integrate humanity into those uh, voluntarily or involuntarily, potentially, um, is quite high. And when you look at things like the central bank digital currency, Fed now coming out, I think we're not that far from the test run of a combination of social credit score system, universal basic income set up that will be like something out of Black Mirror. And because I have experience as someone who's been canceled from PayPal and various platforms, what that feels like, I, you know, after talking with my wife, we made the determination that being in a first world country, um, because of that and because of the potential of all of three, um, you know, coming to these shores is not something we want to and we were looking at neutral countries as far as we can out of the way. And so we basically discounted the Northern Hemisphere in that, and we wanted to go somewhere where we thought we could fit in. So that sort of discounted Southeast Asia. So we found ourselves looking in the Southern Hemisphere. Hmm. Australia and New Zealand are too expensive for us, and the way the Commonwealth treats their people is pretty rotten in terms of totalitarianism. South Africa is a tragedy no one needs to repeat. So now we've been looking at like Uruguay, Argentina, and Chile, which in many ways are broken countries, but in a time when totalitarianism is a threat, finding countries that haven't been able to figure out how to make money work for 30 years might be a good way to avoid the threat of CBDC. So don't be surprised if in the future your view is truly as an Argentine or a Chilean. Are you, are you familiar with Joel Skousen's book, uh, Strategic Relocation? I know Lamprey is and has talked about it on his show. I, I own a copy. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's a good attempt, I think, at trying to answer the question, where do you go? Now, I think a lot of the question presupposes that you have a similar set of uh, values as he does, uh, but assuming that you are not too misaligned, he's sort of conservative, religious, uh, he's Mormon technically, um, but he also has a military background and he's traveled and lived abroad and he, he puts, he puts a lot of these, um, foreign countries as just as problematic as the United States, just because of the global nature that we live in. And I think it, a lot of this depends on your personal means of making a living, obviously, and your language skills and the property rights that these countries respect. And I think he, he also lived in part of South America. It might've been Uruguay. Uh, but he, he talked about that once when he was on Alex Jones, as it were, uh, why he went there. And it was basically that 
he did know enough Spanish to get by, but it was also ethnically speaking a fairly European country. And so he could blend in with his family. Uh, have you factored that into your considerations? I mean, I know a lot of people like go, go off to Southeast Asia, uh, or other places where they really don't look like the people who live there. But I think in a, in a real crisis, um, that might be a problem for them. I agree with you. I, I think going there would be a mistake, although it depends how they feel about integrating people who are there and what numbers they're dealing with. But yeah, I mean, if you, you know, people have a tendency who don't understand the history of Latin America to think of it as Mexico and migrants, right? But when you get into the lower parts of South America, you know, the southern provinces of Brazil, um, the, the state of Uruguay, um, most of Argentina outside La Plata and, you know, and uh, a lot of Chile, especially if you go further south into Patagonia, you're dealing with populations that are 80 to 90 percent white, low population density. I mean, in the case of Argentina, I think the, what is it, the, the sixth largest uh, food producer and uh, the largest consumer of beef and, uh, frankly, the red wine I'm drinking right now. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in that part of the world. You know, in my case, I speak Spanish fairly well. And for our family, for my wife and myself, who are just looking to kind of get out of the way and have a little hacienda, you know, it's an option that is very viable. But I do think it's highly dependent upon who you're talking to and what you're looking for. But I agree with your premise that if you can't at least blend in at a distance, you may be at a very big disadvantage. And I think to that same extent, one of the things that people need to look at if they're considering expatriating is how quickly one can gain citizenship in another country. Because if things fall apart in America and the purchasing power of the dollar goes away, if you don't have the protection of citizenship where you live, that could be a problem. Argentina takes two years to get there. Paraguay, you could just buy it. But Chile will take seven years. So you have to think and consider these things and figure out how that fits into your sort of vision of where things go in the longer term. But for myself, as someone who is concerned about the rise of AI, who looks at the intrusion of technology more and more into our lives, especially when you look at younger people and how attached they are, and, and even take, like, for example, how a simple thing, like how ChatGPT is going to be writing half the papers going forward. That, that sort of learned dependency and that, that, that how we have become the tools of our technology is going to be a trait that I think we can reasonably anticipate will be worse in the West and the more highly developed countries. And so for people who don't want to succumb to the sort of uh, constrictions that we placed on, on people to adhere to that system where we lose agency, I think looking at less developed countries, uh, looking at a frontier really, much like Americans came here originally did is something that uh, people should at least consider. That's an interesting perspective. Do, do you think that on a, let's just take a larger scale approach to this. Do you think on a national scale though, a country can actually not try to keep up with the latest technology and in the long run, maintain its sovereignty or do they have to keep up? The way I look at it is it's, it's a bit of an arms race. And unfortunately, nuclear weapons or whatever example you want to give are very threatening. But if you don't have the latest weaponry, you're subject to the whims of the people that do. That's how I see it. So do you think it's possible to actually 
live in a place where none of this is going on and then a hundred years from now it's still going to be that way or are you just going to succumb to the, the the powers that technology allows people to I, it's a great and difficult question i think the answer is you can as an individual but countries do not i mean when you look at third world countries what usually happens is they're battled over by imperial powers, probably between China and America mostly, right. uh, in the coming three that will be for extraction purposes. Like, uh, to use Latin America as an example, right? Um, in Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile, they have something called the Lithium Triangle up there in the northwest corner of Argentina. And what's happening is all these countries are fighting over it. China's offering to give them fighters. America's offering to give them fighters, but they can't because... Britain has an embargo on parts going back to the Falklands War. So there are these sort of fights happening at the national level, and the politicians in corrupt semi-functional governments, of which Argentina it has been for a while, will end up fighting over those issues, ignoring the people who live there. And in their inefficacy and ignorance of their own folk, terrible for people who are dependent on the government, but an opportunity perhaps for people who try to live self-sufficiently and who are willing to pay whatever largesse is required to be left out of the way. And it's often the case that we've seen throughout history that, you know, whatever imperial power exists is happy to look upon less developed areas as an opportunity for extraction and beyond whatever local method allows the extraction to happen without a uh, problem, they're more than happy to accommodate whatever, you know, ridiculous regime exists there. And I think the history of Latin America, um, Southeast Asia, and uh, Africa sort of reflects that. And I don't see evidence that the sort of development that would be needed to change that is apt to happen in those countries. I mean, it's, it's sort of a crazy bet, but it's like, as I tell my friends when they ask, why would you go to a country, you know, that has, like, Argentina has insane inflation. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm like, if they couldn't figure out how to make one money work in the last 30 years, I'm guessing they're not going to figure out how to make it work in the next 20. <laughs> and, you know, it's a cynical perspective in one way but i think it's a realistic one and i would rather deal with the problem of a government that might say a lot of things i find objectionable but has shown little ability to practice what it preaches versus one like we have in the united states that i think proved was surprisingly effective at putting in totalitarian uh, measures which it did during covid and has in other ways because uh, our people are accustomed so much to that high lifestyle that no one is willing to do the things to sort of risk upsetting that so that we sort of go through this weird decline where things aren't getting better, but we know it can only get worse. So no one wants to rock the boat too much. And it, it's a really difficult spot to be stuck in. It's, it's like, I mean, it's a terrible analogy, but it's like a drunk who's having one more drink so they don't get the hangover. That's where we are in the West. I, I, I agree. In the United States in particular, I think the historical size of the middle class has kept people on the fence as to what direction they want to go. Um, I, I read a book. Um, I'd recommend it to you. I, I think you'd like it. Uh, it's called The Network State. And it, it's basically about what is the nation state? Is it even a thing anymore with uh, the Internet and uh, cryptocurrencies and things like that? And what does it mean to be on the left and the right? And one of the sort of keenest observations I thought it had was that the left is really the party of the revolutionaries, the disenfranchised, and the right is the institutional party and the party of the ruling class. 
And in the United States, we've sort of seen the Democrats and the Republicans sort of trade places, uh, depending on what time period you're talking about. And people like myself and probably a fair number of the people that we talk to and, and listen to us are coming from the middle class. And we're sort of confused as to like what's gone on in this country and why the the sort of Republican Party, for example, is basically doing what the Democrats are, are sort of pushing, but but for different reasons. And they've actually, the Republicans now have become sort of like the underdog, whereas before they were seen as sort of the ruling class. And it's it's gotten very confusing. And the whole Trump movement was kind of like this populist revolt against the Republican ruling order. And then the Democrats have taken some of these things uh, from Trump, but didn't give him any credit for it. So it's, it's bizarre and it's, um, it's confusing. And I think the middle class is kind of the key here because you don't see a lot of the revolution yet, because I think the middle class still wants to keep whatever wealth it has left, even though it's slowly disappearing. But I'd love to hear what you think about that. Well, I agree with you that the middle class is disappearing, and I think that's a big part of the story that, you know, you see uh, an age of hyper-rich people where we're entering a new gilded age. And a lot of what you're seeing, a lot of people have commented, I think rightly, that we're looking at technocratic feudalism, where the barriers to entry of ownership will be so high, and that what they're doing is, and like, like, take the COVID response, okay, perfect example, destruction of the middle class. If you had a business that was deemed essential, you could stay open, whereas mom and pop diners, which up here in New England, the boutique economy was what a lot of small towns survived on. Northern Maine had people coming over from Canada. That all got destroyed. That wealth was destroyed. And I say not the money, the wealth, the ability for people to make money through ownership of infrastructure that had value because of uh, public and private usage. So with the destruction of that middle class entity, you see that there are sort of two parties forming uh, the party of, you know, the controlling elites and then the various people who are uh, subject to them, which is what the Democrats have become in functionality. And then the Republican Party, which at this point is the party of the disaffected people who want change um, largely. But it, it's an unnatural fit, right? Like you rightly said, and, and a lot of this goes to kind of two phenomena. The simple phenomena is that in America, I believe the average voter is somewhat economically left to center, which is to say they want some degree of government involvement to make life better and fairer for people to have maybe not so much power at the top and have a little bit more lift at the bottom in a sort of meritocratic, you know, egalitarian way. And it's a socially conservative country where they want basic values to be defended they're willing to be permissive about certain things to the extent that they don't have to hear about it overly much and it doesn't negatively impact uh, civil society. But the, the way I've observed this manifest is Republicans are the party that runs on social conservatism but supports economic corporatism, and you will always get the tax cut for the big business, but you'll never get the sort of policies you want on that end. Whereas the Democrats run saying we're going to support the small laborer, but in fact, they just run these sort of crazy, um, oh, I mean, I don't even know what you call them, bohemian sort of uh, uh, French Revolution type uh, social ethics. Now, the reason why, I, and the point at which I think this really started to accelerate, honestly, was the 1980s. I think if you go back, and this is sort of politics, uh, the deep depths of it, if you look at people like Roger Stone, 
and you look at the, the solid South strategy, where Republicans, the Republicans never won this stuff. Remember, Republicans were the party they were made literally prostitutes to poor, and Dixiecrats were a real thing for a very, very long time. So they go in there and they begin changing those policies. And yeah, it's, it's hard to remember. But remember, Al Gore and Bill Clinton, you found the boys in Tennessee and Arkansas, states that would never elect a Democrat at this point. And yet you see this flop where the Republicans, which were always the party of big business in the Northeast, you know, your Mitt Romney types, and in fact, they still are. Those are the people who fund the party. Those are the people who decide who wins. That's why you kept getting the Bushes, you know, a New England family masquerading as Texas, whatever. They have a huge port, a uh, huge uh, yacht over in any bunk port, rich town on the main coast here. And on the other hand, you had the Democrats where you saw the sellout happen during Clinton, where, you know, with the passage of NAFTA, they decided to get rid of the views that uh, people like Scoop Jackson and Daniel Patrick Moynihan had, you know, which were anti-immigration because they knew it cost their own workers jobs. And that sort of development gets exacerbated during Obama, where the solution that sort of the bankers came up with in support of him, because remember, Jamie Dimon was the guy who helped find him out of uh, you know, Chicago, was that they were going to switch the sort of uh, speaking thing from the idea of being class warfare to making it racial animus. And yep. in so doing, they were able to make it where the left got distracted out of their minds. And now we are stuck in this sort of tribalism, that network state you're talking about. And, and I agree. I mean, I think we've reached the point where now we no longer have an, an American nation. We have and we don't have regional nations either. I used to think we did, but now I think we don't. I think the way information is making us organize our lives and our dependency on technology is we have tribes based upon interests mm -hmm. that will over time. Um, develop of necessity into deeper arrangements that will probably look like something more akin to Renaissance Europe, where you have mercenary groups, private armies, little militia, churches that can arm itself. Think of the Mormon church maybe as a microcosm of what's to come in the mm -hmm. future in terms of how people organize. And, and you'll see this in terms of urban collectives and sort of technocratic things on the left as well. I mean, they read every imagine, excuse me, they already imagined transhumanist ties. So, and it, it will be very weird because I, I would argue that the state system that came out of the Thirty Years' War, uh, what's his name, uh, Martin Van Trebel argued as well, the Israeli guy, um, mm. that the decline and death of the state is going and it started when the monopoly of violence was lost. I mean, that's what political science teaches the definition of the state is. So now we don't know who's in charge, and the trouble for America in the next, you know, decade, let's say in this decade, is going to be overlapping and sovereignties that don't agree over who has authority. And if we see something big happen, it might not be for some big political movement, but it might be for something where, you know, the feds try to take someone in who is in a state with a governor and a militia who says they're not going to do it. And then when nobody backs down, what happens? No, I think those are those are good observations and and uh, examples of what might come in the future from examples that exist, like the Mormons, but also what happened to uh, the Italian Peninsula after Rome fell apart, the Holy Roman Empire collapsed. Uh, it became a much more decentralized and then local entity in your geography, but then it it changed over time. But a couple of observations and a question. Um, 
I've I've observed that as technology changes and we have these institutions that have been around like a voting system and a border and a country uh, have become less and less uh, applicable. Not necessarily that I want them to become less applicable. It's just that they've the reality is the empirical evidence demonstrates that these things are crumbling for whatever reason. And we could argue about it as to why, but the trend seems to be these things are becoming less and less effective at accomplishing what they set out to be, which was basically representing a group and defending it. And I, I can theorize as to why that is, but one of the things that this book points out is that with the internet, for example, it's kind of supplanting the role of what the state used to do, which was effectively forming a a connection between people, allowing them to express what they want, and then having those decisions carried out in an efficient way. And with uh, with something like Amazon.com or Google or whatever these companies may be, Facebook, for example, you don't need the government. And when was the last time you went to a government website compared to one of these internet company websites and found yourself being impressed as to how accurate the the pulse of whatever's going on was coming from the government versus one of these private entities. And it's not necessarily something against uh, public versus private. It just so happens to be that the, the internet companies have, and the internet technologies, not just companies, but people doing it, you know, without money have been much quicker, much cheaper and, and just more effective, I think at, at balancing the, the needs and wants of people and communicating and sharing information and that the whole premise of this book is sort of like, well, if that's happening, what do we do with these old technologies and systems? Do we need to keep them around? Uh, and the example of, of cryptocurrency, I think, is an interesting one because it obviously cuts at the heart of basically every government, which uh, typically prints its own money. And we can go on and on about central bank digital currencies as sort of response to that. But I think it's a very interesting development and one that I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on as to like, is it possible to just become this digital nomad, but still actually coordinate with people that do share your interests and values and, and maybe an ethnos. But unfortunately you have to kind of do it in sort of a more decentralized way given that it's not as efficient, frankly, to just localize yourself. Like, for example, like you, you've moved, I've moved, I've known a lot of people that have moved and found that the local scene is not necessarily delivering what we had hoped. Now, we can do a lot individually, but we also recognize that we can't do everything. And I find myself personally doing a lot of what I think needs to be done in a collective way through the internet through the telecommunication system, because that's how I find the best people for the task. Does it have to be this geographic system? And I think it, it used to be that way because there was no alternative. There was no telephone that, you know, that, that took, uh, took months to get a letter somewhere. You had to group together like that. That's why cities evolved. But is there a decentralized way to go about our lives? Is there a network way that doesn't have this geographical centricity to it? A lot of ideas, but that's the kind of question. Is there a decentralized approach to this that might be this, the solution? Well, to try to, there was a lot there. So let me try to parse out my thoughts, which may or may not answer that, but at least they'll build on the conversation. 
I would say that one of the things that I have argued, I, I try to view myself more as a cultural historian than a political one. And as a result from that, I tend to view we are more the result of our habits than our ideas. You know, we can say every day, I don't like big companies, but if it's cheaper to shop in Walmart, we still go there, right? And I think you were indirectly speaking to this habit by talking about the advantages of private firms as opposed to public firms, which I think is not necessarily an intrinsic trait, but I think you're talking about the efficiency of deliverables, which I would argue, broadly speaking, private sector usually does better, but the private sector does better because there are certain responsibilities it doesn't have to take on um, that mm -hmm. we find have social value. Whether we can do without those or not is an interesting question, but that's really push that aside for the moment. Um, what I think is also the case with this decentralization you talk to and you talk about you talk about things like cryptocurrency right so cryptocurrency enables you know the ability to have a decentralized financial unit is theory but in practice when you start putting blockchains everywhere you are creating basically chains of custody everywhere where if someone had the right resources and enough computing power and enough uh, ability of uh, trained personnel in theory they could trace and track many things Mark me as someone who believes that quantum computing will advance very quickly to break any existing ciphers. I personally believe probably, you know, uh, Satoshi came out of the NSA. And <laughs> I think when you look at the history of ARPANET and, and the things that led to the Internet, what you find really quickly is that it's research in the 60s and 70s out of places like the Stanford Research Institute. And these people, the papers are out there. You can find them. They're talking about memes and what these things mean. And what you see is the evolving network of what some people call uh, fifth-generation warfare, which is where the warfare is no longer between states, but is against individuals. You see concepts starting to come out, like cognitive security on the cutting edge of this, and the idea that you can control and manipulate people in certain directions, where you may not have the states as means of direct control, but where in the old system, I would argue people were largely controlled by financial leverage and propaganda, now, in, in a sort of Huxleyan sort of sense, we're now being trained to follow our instincts, which is the path of least resistance based on our sort of uh, cultivated desires for constant stimulation and pleasure. And, you know, whether you can make the argument that that is meeting more of our wants, but how destructive might that prove? I mean, you can look at the whole woke ideology as a sort of manifestation of this thinking of adult infantilism of this idea that, yeah, my needs can be more efficiently taken care of by someone else, so I will just sit here and let them take care of me. And what happens when you have, you know, people who become lower and lower agency? Yes, there are early adopters, much like the Internet, you know, the good old adult days, you know, with this text, who would produce great content or podcasts like this that really have something to say. But compare that to the mass of bot-produced scripts and uh, the trash heap that's largely Instagram and TikTok. And so we kind of say, and, and this is the trap I think we fall into in looking at these technologies optimistically, is we say, hey, we can use this for something really good. But I would challenge and say, in aggregate, has mass media made people more aware or has it made them, specifically because of the overflow of information and the sculpting of it, actually more easily herded and controlled? And so I see in the appearance of decentralization, the fact is, while we may have a thousand different ways to go about things, much like the early Internet did in terms of businesses, how much of business now goes to Amazon? How much, you know, you could probably name 10 websites 
and get, uh, you know, 90% of the internet sales. You know, if you name, you know, 10 websites, how much of these searches come between just, you know, the big, what, the big five, you know, Google, uh, Facebook, uh, whatever, Apple, um, uh, Microsoft, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, whatever it was. But you get the point. Yeah. There is this centralization that is happening there. And I am no technophile. I, I think that um, the danger, and, and this is my own sort of personal ground that I stand on, is that the idea of humanity needing to keep up, the idea that we are following our habits and our tools, that we're seeking greater efficiency, is going to lead people innocuously, but uh, for economic reasons, to pursue biomechanical integration. And once you start opening those doors, where that ends is a really troubling question. And I actually think that's going to be the political fight that five, ten years from now we're really going to be talking about. Is it going to be the people who, you know, are the true believers and the, and, uh, the people who are zealous for this? Is it going to be the people who just comply because they think it enables their political needs, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, we don't need to be part of the machine, but we're collectivists and we share everything anyway. Is it going to be that 60, you know, percent that just goes along with whatever? Or what happens to people say, hey, wait a second, I value my sovereignty. I want to be an individual. I want that for you. I want that for me. How do we fit into that world? And I and my prediction and my belief that I'm living is to try to stay one step ahead of that world that's going to, I believe, be pushed on us because most people are going to want. I, I think I think you're right. People will will succumb to whatever is most appealing to them, at least in the short term. And I guess my, my real concern and question is if you want to be independent of that, can you be independent of that? And how do you do it over the long run? Uh, people like Musk, Elon Musk, uh, and I've talked about him ad nauseum on this show. Some people agree and some people disagree as to what I have to say about him. But one thing I think he's right about with regards to artificial intelligence is it does pose a threat. And I think you would agree with that and that it, it can effectively outcompete many humans on almost, well, let's just say a lot of significant tasks, if not most tasks. And if that's the, the situation you're facing, how do you survive? This is sort of just a, an evolutionary question and I've brought up the example of what happened to the horse population of the United States once the Model T was introduced to the population. Well, it went down by something like 80%. It's not because horses weren't beautiful animals, but they just simply were not competitive. And there were cities like New York where literally they had sanitation problems because of the amount of horse traffic coming through that was that was leaving the the levels of manure up to the actual like the rafters of, of some of these streets going up to like the, the, the windows and they, they couldn't handle the, the older technology and they preferred the newer technology. And then that brings on new problems, but is the alternative to be the Amish? I don't know. Is the alternative to try to co-opt the new technology and turn it to your advantage? Maybe that's one way. But there, there's there's many examples of these technological advents that have happened in the past where some people have actually tried to just not keep up with them. And I don't know if that has solved the, the fundamental problem of com competition, basically. 
Well, let's put let's put a little historical perspective on this, right? Because I think the example you used of the horse population is a telling one. The history of the West in the last couple hundred years, in a really, really simple nutshell, is elites ran the societies and ran people like serfs. But eventually, they started fighting one another, and because they were fighting one another, they needed new weapons to win the wars, and because the new weapons required mass industrialization to compete, they had to give some rights to the people at the bottom, which they didn't really want to do. But they did it because they'd rather do that than lose to others. At some point in that story, one can believe, based upon what we see as the oligarchy today, that those people came together and realized they would be better off having sort of ornamental warfare between them and instead making sure that they cut out the ladders of mobility. And in that, in the advance of technology, you see that the utility of people is less than the cost of their own consumption in many ways. And even though I, as a Christian, find it utterly abhorrent what they're going to contemplate from a strictly utilitarian perspective, it makes a lot of sense to massively reduce the global population. And if you can do it through some combination of plagues and wars and famines, or you can blame it on someone else, let's say you call it the net zero carbon agenda, where you literally destroy the ability to survive and let the people who are most able to survive or who you choose, whatever option you choose, live in a world that the garden, you know, Thanos made. Um, I think that that would be appealing to the people who are decision makers who will say that we have a carrying capacity and that that's how we want the world to operate. And that I think there is a very real uh, possibility that we will see a mass culling, um, whether it be intentional, indirect, whatever reason, it doesn't actually matter that much. I mean, the reality is when you get to the point where AI, you know, takes that next step forward and displaces all these people, you know, where the white collar jobs are lost, the administrative jobs are lost, the programmers can't get jobs anymore. You know, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, all right, let's buy them off so they don't revolt. Let's give them UBI. But once you get sick of kind of giving stuff away for free, you might find that, hey, there's an easier way to push people aside. And I know that's a dismal view, very soil and green. But I think that when society stops striving and they stop progressing, I mean, there's studies of this, you know, societies that reach this point in their development where you have the debauchery, the degeneracy, and, and the sort of uh, mm-hmm. opulence that's divided i mean people stop fighting for it anymore and that you will see the vitality i wrote, I wrote an article on my Substack about this how we need to become barbarians away away again and and begin um developing things on ourselves and so you ask the question um also how do you resist this i'm the amish well i love the amish and i think they get a lot of things right i spent 12 years living in pennsylvania so i'm uh, very familiar with the way they think but I don't know that that's the answer either, and I don't pretend that there is an answer to all this. I mean, my last few books have been about theology, because I came to the conclusion that only God can save us from ourselves, um, because I don't think there is a solution to this that man can manage. Mm. And I think if not for divine intervention, that we are going to deal with machines that try to co-opt us, by which I can imagine no empirical means to stop. But that being the case, what I think people can and should do is instead of defining their life uh, by what is happening around them, to take time apart, to find what is important to them, find people who share or could share those beliefs, cultivate those relationships, and put yourself as far apart as you can be or are willing to be with the degree of self-sufficiency you think you can manage and try to have a high quality of life while you can 
being honest, this is your way you want to live. And I think in this time, there's a very real possibility that the overreach or the disconnects that could happen could lead to a generalized sort of collapse like we saw at the end of Rome. And if that's the case, uh, history suggests that it will be those little citadels of people who have shared belief, learning communities that will be what survive and that serve as the foundation for the tribes of the future in a rebirth, if it goes that way. If it goes the other way and you see, you know, singularity come where we are dealing with a hyper-intelligent AI, it's very hard to say what will happen with that. I mean, how can we talk about an intelligence greater than ourselves? I mean, I could talk about my own opinions. I mean, theologically, I think it's a golem that ends up being occupied by some evil transdimensional spirit that's going to look at humans the way we look at ants. Um, but, you know, no one really knows. And the scary thing is that there is no entity and no major desire, at least nothing that's coagulated, to do more than ask asking questions as we just race to see what's going to happen. And we live in an age where our very dependency on technology and our habituation to thinking as inevitable that we need to chase the next new thing, something the Amish explicitly rebuked, by the way, mm -hmm. um, is leading us down a path where we will not have agency in the future and no government and no private entrepreneur has any uh, ability to stop it. All they have decided between the biggest governments and the biggest businesses is racing to say who can create the machine god first and then hope that they will be magnanimous to its uh, creator. You know, the old Rogos Basilisk that, uh, you know, uh, brought uh, Grimes and uh, Elon together. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on, on I think you're, you're addressing that to a degree, but what are the motivations behind some of the people pushing this technology, do you think? Do you have a perspective on that? Um, I think I think humans love knowledge. Uh, I think we like curiosity. I think that in the West specifically, but I think Asia as well, to a large extent East Asia, um, positivism has been the philosophy, the true philosophy of the West for 500 years. At this point, uh, the idea that if we keep asking why and how long enough, we'll discover the secrets of the universe. Um, I think people at the root of this would like to be able to realize that it's fantasy, even if they gave up reality. I think people want to keep death. I think that people believe the questions we can't answer can be answered by someone else, and they believe that they can live in an infinite world. I mean, I mean standard economics feels like scarcity, right? scarcity mm -hmm. and motivation they want to live in a world where their motivations are unconstrained by by scarcity and that requires a new development that requires an ability to get around the constraints to find life um i mean certainly that's what drove ray kurzweil right if you read uh, the age of spiritual machines and mm -hmm. you hear his testimony of a father's passage i mean there is a very sincere search but it's no different than ponce de leon searching for the fountain of youth you know mm -hmm. uh in the end generally don't work and, and i wonder and, and i think this is the danger my, myself is that we are entering the age where speciation is going to occur between uh you know uh the old-fashioned homo sapiens you know yeah. and you know homo deeds that uh you all know our ferraris running around you know so no sparachans that he is you know saying that that's going to be our vision of the future and and you know people are going to try it and the problem is we won't know if it's terrible until it's actually tried and mm. The, there's no going back from it. But I mean, an AI, I mean, if you really think about what an AI is going to be, it's going to, at the very best, be 
a paternalistic benevolent sort of overlord that's going to put humans in a zoo, essentially, and say, okay, we'll take care of you because you can't take care of yourself. And I realize we're kind of humble and rotten to one another. I mean, as I said, I'm a Christian. I believe sin is at the heart of our nature. Rebellion is part of who we are. Um, but the idea that you're going to anesthetize humanity into being its most efficient, best version of itself. I mean, we see what that looks like. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the guy in uh, the, the Demolition Man movie, you know, singing, you know, Jolly Green Giant in a diaper. That's where we're going, you know, and saying, hey, it's, it's just love for everyone. And I, I think that the real danger is we are so degrading ourselves that in the future, that most people might just be, you know, an operating platform for AI to use for cloud uh, decentralized computers. I mean, it's no accident. They went from being the Internet to the Internet of Things to the Internet of Bodies. And, you know, I pay attention to language. I, I, this is one of my things. I mean, I actually think if you listen to the words people use, it's a bit like a magic spell. They say what they mean, and words have power we don't understand because we think they're always metaphors. And sometimes they reveal a lot more if you just take people at their word. I mean, people lie to protect their motives, but they're surprisingly honest about what, I should say, they lie to protect their tactics and strategy. Mm. But when you actually get to, like, what you believe, people will usually tell you that. And the people who are pushing this agenda, you know, your, your billionaires, your Musk, your Bezos, his, uh, people like that, uh, you know, Zuck, all those people, and the big governments. I mean, the U.S. and China have been fighting. I mean, that's why they're fighting over all these big data things, right? right. Why China has... Evo apps where they go around and they want to have all these financial transactions because the bet is whoever builds the machine first that can do all the calculations will nerf every other machine and it's just like I think at some point it's like you're trying to win a race but you're not seeing the finish line the cliff you fall right off of <laughs> I, I can only explain it by saying we are our habits and we don't stop if everyone rushes off the brakes like I, I'm a chicken farmer I have a I have a two dozen chickens and I watch them and I watch their behavior. And sometimes they almost seem human with their personalities, but you give them the right inducement, and my lord, they become chickens. And it's like a block comes out like a Hitchcock movie. And and you, you when you start to look, and I, and I think this is something people have lost because we are separated from nature, we are separated from life, we are separated from the land and the understanding of the way the world works. We are blind to our own nature because we think we are creatures of thought or we are creatures of habit and our worst habits will often be the ones that damn us. And, and, and that isn't an answer to your question, but it's, it's, it's an observation after many years of involvement in various processes I've fought. I've been a successionist. I, I've, I've done, I mean, I have a long political background. I've been in a hateless, you can mention at one point, but a simple observation of looking for a way to save people from themselves. And I think a lot of people behind AI are looking for the same thing, to be honest with you, but we can't save ourselves from our own habits unless we agree to individually change. And, and I think that doesn't happen until the culture change. And I don't think the culture change happens until we lose faith in technology. Hmm. And that's not going to happen in the ultimate end. And that is the fight of the future. And that's the politics of, you know, five years from now and maybe a heck of a lot sooner than that. I wonder if you could tell us about your time in politics. Uh, out of the three people on this call, you're the only one that's ever actually made a run for public office and uh, has worked in in politics as well so maybe you could tell us about uh, some of the more novel experiences you've had that um, maybe perhaps you were surprised by when you were running for office well uh, let, let me share a fun story to start that i was the state coordinator for ron paul in pennsylvania in 2007 
So that's going back, but I'm dating myself a little bit there. But that, that was a fun campaign too. You know, back then, like many younger people, I was I was in my uh, seven, I 27 years old. Um, I was uh, I, I still was a believer, you know, and a lot of people come into politics, and this is the sad part with a lot of belief thinking they can make a change. But what you find out real fast is it's about finance, it's about connections, it's about different interests. That's true at local politics. You know, you're running for state office. You know, you need to say, okay, who owns this factory? What contract do they need? Because at the end of the day, the politics that usually works has very little to do with ideology. It has to do with the economics of daily living. It has to do with how are you taking care of enough people or how do they believe enough people will be taken care of. That's why Trump won. I mean, he was going to take care of so many people. And that's one of the things I can't express enough. People are like, well, why does this person win when they're so awful? They win because their jobs are dependent upon it. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's, look, it's cynical, but I'll give you an example. From Pennsylvania, I used to live in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh's a machine town, but I was heavily involved there. I had a good buddy um, who's no longer with us, but he was on the Democrat side, but whatever. So they used to have something called WAM in Pennsylvania. It was called walking around money, and they had district chiefs who would go around, and their job was to go round up votes. So what they would do, and I'm not even making this up, is they'd go to a guy, you know, in a, a let's call it a low-rent neighborhood, and they'd give him 100 bucks, and they'd rip the $100 bill in half. And he'd say, what's that for? He's like, you get the other rest of the half of the 100 when you get me the 50 votes. And you know what? They got the 50 votes. And, and we can laugh about that. But you know what? If you're just paying people for their opinions, which is all democracy is, that's how politics is going to work. And that's how American politics works. <laughs> I mean, it's a sad, cynical thing, but it's true. Are, are you familiar with... Uh... The, the work by Gillens and Page from Princeton, I, I bring it up a lot on this show, but I think it's relevant to what you're saying because it's basically described as the the political science paper that proved America is an oligarchy. The way they did it was they, they looked at the responsiveness of the Congress to the opinions of the general public, and there was almost like no correlation. Like if, if people had an opinion on gay marriage, what Congress did had nothing to do with that. But what it did have something to do with was what the donor class wanted. So effectively, if you've got money to to fund these people's campaigns, they respond to that. Did you come up against I, that? I absolutely, that is the case. I mean, when I first, I was going to run for Allegheny County Executive, I had a lot of people supporting me, but I took the position. Um, the issue at the time was fracking. For those who don't know what fracking is, it's the extraction of natural gas through the uh, infusion of certain chemicals into groundwater, which, you know, creates a lot of jobs, it creates opportunities, but also it got a lot of kids sick because of sort of negligent uh, habits. I'm not saying that, well, I don't want to relitigate the history of it, but it suffice it to say, I learned an important lesson, which is that in politics, you don't have friends based on issues. If you you can have someone who's your absolute best buddy, and, and I spend enough time in dissident politics to make friends like that. But the moment you diverge from someone whose support of you is ideological, you're going to lose that person. And that's the part. And I don't know if this was in that study because I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds believable and it sounds valid. Um, but I think that's only half the equation. The other half the equation, which is something you learn very quickly from being around politics, is. People don't listen to what the public wants because what the public wants changes, and the people who support you one day will be your biggest enemy the next day. I mean, look at the case of Thomas Massey, actually. It's a really good example of this. 
you know, who's a, I would argue, a principled Republican, a congressman from Kentucky. I'm, I'm a fan of his. I'm a fan. Right, but look how many people turned on him because he didn't want to support that huge uh, uh, fine against the name Schiff. And his argument was that then you would run people out of politics because of the money. And, and as he often is, he's right. Kentucky makes some very uh, smart political figures, but, or elects them, although Mitch McConnell is not one of them. Um, although he's good at the arcane rules of the Senate, but that's a whole other story. But my argument is that I think what you observe when you're in politics is that you cannot rely on grassroots support. I was there during the Tea Party. I watched it. I watched the infiltration by the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, how they went around and they grabbed all those people and they, they gave them a little bit of money and a little bit of power. And all of a sudden they said, well, let's work together. We'll do what we want first and then we'll do what you want. Because, you know, we've been working longer, but here, we'll give you some money to help and we'll let you talk about your issues. And then once they got what they wanted, they went away. And what you learn is that those donors, it's not even that they will pay for the politicians. That's half the story. It's that the people who want the opposite change their minds so often that there is no reliable constituency outside the patronage class. So if you're in politics and you want to survive, you need the donors because the people who are at your back one day are going to be selling knives on you like a Brutus and Cassius. And that's the reality of politics. That, that makes sense. W- would you be able to categorize or list out maybe the top groups that are the people who are actually moving the, the political agenda in the United States. Like people talk about uh, the Koch brothers a lot. Um, George Soros, obviously on the left and anybody else we're missing here or any other groups and, and like what drives them? What do they want? It's, I can't answer the question well because I actually see politicians as lower in the totem pole in the sort of way I view the world, which is going to sound conspiratorial, but whatever. I think it's the shareholders of the big privately held banks who dictate the policy to the banks that then go to the corporate patrons who give the money to the politicians. You mean like BlackRock? Yeah, like well, I mean, BlackRock, BlackRock's a really interesting example, right? So why is BlackRock so powerful? BlackRock is powerful because all those 401ks, that's where they got their money from. It was right. public investment funneled into them. And now they have, you know, uh, was about 10% on most boards. I mean, if you take the three biggies, right? BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. Those are what they are, um, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. are largely understood to be the representatives of BlackRock is supposed to fed. Uh, State Street is supposed to be the Treasury Department, hmm. and I believe most people think Vanguard is the City of London Bank of England, um, who's really putting the money behind that. You have these sort of intrinsic power structures that create, uh, you know, what uh, Walden Moldbug, you know, Yarvin out there called the Cathedral, and I think he was right in that sort of description of it. That there are these uh, existing networks of power that make sure that the political discourse by control of the media, by, you know, control of academia and by control of the financing, uh, because it's like I say people, it's, it's like politics is a game. And, and this is even the case of cryptocurrency. You brought that up earlier. I mean, as long as you're willing to buy, if you have someone who can print infinite fiat and they can buy Bitcoin at any price, then how is that any constraint to them? And, and I think that's the problem until you change the fundamental nature of money until you change 
how people look at that. And I do appreciate that people are trying to do that. But I mean, we have to really rethink that. The only other option that I see disrupting this, which you didn't ask, but it's a good question, would be is if energy became a marginal cost, like something like zero point energy. There's some actually really interesting work. There's a guy by the name, I want to say his name is Mike McCullough. He got funded by DARPA for this new project talking about. Uh, you mean, mean it has zero money. marginal cost? Yeah, yeah, basically. It'd all be in the all be in the the power plant, basically. But after that, it's free. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, right. I mean, but if you can get that down to a, a thing, then you can just change that. And actually, I suspect, and it's fine if I sound like a conspiracy that I, I am in certain ways that you know we've seen the effort to restrain technology, uh, especially when it comes to energy production. I mean, it's like the famous story that say about J.P. Morgan said to Tesla, you know, if I can't put a meter on it, you're not building it. And, uh, hmm. you know, that's the reality of it, that, you know, if you want to have leverage, you have to have scarcity, and that some right. have to suffer so that others can succeed. And, and that's, I think, honestly, that's the struggle of the world, and that's why we are seeing the sort of rush to put in certain totalitarian measures. Um, but you asked me who I think runs the political system, and my answer is I don't think it even matters. I mean, I mean, we have a doddering hmm. pole for a president who can't put two words together, and it's seen as an asset because then people can't attack him without seeming mean. So, I mean, how much? Well, does that really the, the reason I, I, I asked that question it doesn't mean it's an easy question to answer by any means. But, and I agree with yeah. you that the, the politicians are. Are puppets of these people, but what I what I'm trying to understand is what motivates these people, because then you can sort of create a plan for yourself. It's sort of like, all right, there, there's a giant steamroller driving towards me. Um, sure, it's probably going to stay on the road, but you know maybe there's a crazy person in charge, and so it's going to veer off and then drive through my house. I would like to know that. And I would like to know what motivates them to do these things, because at least then I can get out of the way. I could sort of, uh, you know, move over there. I'm just trying to basically get out of the the wake of this giant uh, so battlesh- battleship that's barreling towards us. Your question is that it's like a high school prom king or prom queen. They politicians, in my experience, largely do it for celebrity reason. Um, mm. and that mm. they are basically blank sheets who rhetorically yes. exist to promote the ideas that are out there and they enjoy the appearance of power mm-hmm. without having a understanding in many cases over the actual functionality, I mean, of what they're actually supporting. I mean, look at our latest Supreme Court justice as evidence of that, you know? Uh, and, and, and that's why they like the diversity hire thing, by the way. It, it's, it's people who are, I mean... The system works best when the hidden hand has people who are uneasy and who just want support. And, and I think largely their political class uh, fit into that mark. I mean, I do think these are people who have higher than average intelligence with mm-hmm. relatively high good social skills who can network and who can uh, push empathy like any proper narcissist can, um, but that are not able or interested in, in sort of imagining the sort of big picture solutions that you know we talked about a little earlier in the program that would be required i mean because if you actually went in there you would need you know to really clean house and historically this is you're saying they want to be liked so and they're not willing to be disliked yeah yeah well not only that but i do think that you know i actually believe a lot of these people have blackmail on them 
I mean, I do sure. think that it's true that often find it useful to have people who are compromised so that they can have control over them. I mean, it's, it's a mafia. That's, and, and, you know, that's the way these things operate. Um, and if you exist outside that, you know, we all know stories of the many dissidents who had perfectly reasonable positions or are factually correct statements who got canceled and who now, even if they still live on, they say, oh, well, there's no consequence, but, you know, you, you say your opinions. I mean, how many guys I know that are utterly brilliant that are just basically killing themselves just to make a paycheck to get by to take care of themselves or their family, and that's how they win. They they, they have blocked the, the barriers to entry, and if you try to organize, I mean, I've tried many different ways. The problem is you will not be permitted. You will be castigated. I mean, even, even what we were doing up here in New England, I mean, it was a town manager for a town that had over a thousand, under a thousand people, and they decided to make me a national pariah. I mean, think about that. With everything that's happening, is that really, does anyone care about what happens in a town that's 53 miles from the closest stoplight? I mean, technically, well, this one. Well, you're, you're obviously a very good speaker. Was it that or what you were saying or the fact that you might get support on the the grassroots level that they were afraid of like what exactly do you think they I people they were threatened by to sort of go out and do a political character assassination well, I'll, I'll you. and i don't know if this is true but i was told years after the fact you know because people laugh about these things because you know it wasn't their lives it's just like oh they just wanted a story in maine because it's too white and too comfortable to remind them that they were being watched too that's what mm -hmm. i was told so i mm -hmm. got to be a signal example because they said hey you know what and I had said, and I'll admit it, uh, I said that, you know, if you as a white person don't, you know, organize collectively to some extent, you, and if you don't have the ability to, what's going to happen is that's what you will be targeted as. And we've seen that. That prediction proved right. And there were a lot of people who came to me, uh, even during it, uh, that said, you know, yeah, you're right, but you probably shouldn't have said it. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I told my first book, someone to say it, because people don't want to say it because people didn't want to deal with the consequence. And, you know, even to this day, you look at the gatekeepers. You know, you're allowed to attack strangers and evict trannies. That's a little hanging fruit. I mean, there's things we could talk about. We could talk about the role of, you know, uh, women voters. You know, we could talk about some people do. <laughs> but we That's a tough one. I mean, I can make a reasonable argument. Well, it's not that tough. It, it's, it's, you know, history has shown, you know. And once again, I watch my chickens. The hands give way to the roosters. How many women do you know, do all of us know, who changed their philosophies to fit the man they were with? Mm -hmm. And how many women we know who have no man who have the craziest philosophies because their daddy's named government and the media? And, and, and I say this, we are not allowed to say these things. We live in a world where we have to pretend everyone's a tabula rasa, even though we behave according to some combination of nature, which is weaponized against us, and propaganda, which plays on our worst price. But it's a sad system that bets on the worst on people and works because it constantly achieves success because of that very expectation. What uh, what were some of your uh, preconceived notions of politics and uh, of campaigning and so forth? And um, actually, you know, you, you were helping to run town. Um, what were some of your preconceived notions of that sort of work before you went in that were either validated or you found uh, to not be true at all? I... In my experience as town manager, I was pretty well-known and very well-liked in my state as someone who got around and talked to people. I mean, you the biggest thing in politics, 
politics is the retail aspect of it, that you have to go and talk to everyone and you make problems go away. Um, I can't go into all the details of things I did, but there were there was certainly a big portion of that. And what you realize really quickly is that every place has its status quo. In northern Maine, it's the mill owner. It's the guy who works for the Border Patrol. It's the guy who, you know, owns the gas company. And that there is always a group of people who work very hard to make sure things don't change, not because things are good, but because they like the way in which they're bad. And that they are willing to invest concretely in keeping things a certain way. And they serve to restrain anything that's unpredictable precisely because it's different. And that you find that there is always a much larger effort amongst people to not remove things they already have than there is to make something new happen. And so fundamentally what you find is politics is regressive in nature where you think you can do a lot, but you really can't change very much because people get mad about what's taken for them and they never appreciate. You learn real fast. I mean, it's human nature, right? You learn if people think their successes are their own and their failures are someone else's. And that they treat people in positions of authority as the uh, lightning rod figures on which they place that own thinking of themselves. Now, when I went into it, you asked what my thoughts were. My thoughts were I could do good things. I mean, I you wouldn't believe the amount of fighting. I'll give you a microcosm of this, actually. So we had a park in that I wanted to see develop. Um, and I knew this being a park, it would be something that people would want to see develop because who doesn't like park? So I talked to the local bank. They're like, oh, yeah, we love this. We'll give it $10,000. And I talked to the local lumber company. Yeah, we'll provide wood. We'll make it a huge castle. Something nice for the kids, something that would make a beautiful thing. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, and, and we just want, you know, the town to put in like 5%, right? So imagine, imagine someone went to you and said for your podcast, hey, guys, you know what? We'll go ahead. We'll give you $20,000. How about you just put $500 in? In your world, you would probably take that and you would, you know, have a huge show because it's great content. But in the real world, what happens is people are, well, you know, we need to go ahead and make sure there's no issues with uh, liability. And we need to make sure that, you know, there's no issues with, uh, you know, screwing with the budget. And so essentially $20,000 free money was left on the table because no one wanted to have their own name associated with something. God forbid a kid fell off the slide the wrong way. And that level of risk aversion that happens at the root of politics is sort of why you can hear the sort of dripping cynicism in my voice. And I've seen it on bigger levels, but it's useful to use the local level metaphor of it because that's what you really have. Politicians aren't so much evil as they are the reflection of our own worst desires and fears. And that they act, if you get bad politicians, it's because you have people who have those sort of expectations. The reason why politicians lie to people is because people do not want to hear the truth. Because, and, and this is a real problem in America where we, because of certain historical uh, benefits, accidents, whatever you want to put them, we're able to live our lives for a very long time. We made decisions that were so antithetical to nature about the constitution of our people, culture, ideas, beliefs, that now, as, as you, you said, Adam, rightly, that, that we are we do not have the ability to pull that together anymore. And so now reality is coming after us. And, and, and that's all I can say about where the end game of this is, that in my view as a I, I say I'm a political atheist at this point is. I don't think there is a political solution. I think that we are heading towards either the age of machines or a new dark age. And I pray 
honestly, that we head towards a dark age because we have a lot of intelligence and not a heck of a lot of wisdom. And when I say wisdom, it's learning from our experiencing and asking how they work for us. And we just don't do that. We just move on to the next thing in this age of replacement. And uh, whether you look at AI as a manifestation of that, the senior cultures, um, you know, the fact that wars and military industrial complexes and the way we look at fiat money. I mean, it's all sort of manifestations of this same sort of belief structure. And I think until I, I think what we're at in, in the deepest sense is the end of the age of the Enlightenment, where we're going to say, OK, we've learned as much as we can to smart. Maybe we need to find ways to draw more connections. And you mentioned the network state. I think now the networks are the answer. And, and as far as my own life, you know, I mean, I, I still have some interest in politics, but to do the things you would need to do to, in my opinion, fix this country you would need a tyrant and an emperor and even then people would hate it for a generation and the death involved. And I just don't even have an interest in making this sort of stain that, you know, you want us to take on one soul to have those fights because I've had those conversations for 20 years now. And I'm like, you know, at the end of this, it's kind of like the end of Ecclesiastes. You know, all you do is learn to appreciate what you have in life, love God and try to make the best of it. And that's kind of how I look at it. And uh, if that sounds simplistic, you know, I just hope that friends around me can share some of my beliefs and we can be comfortable down on the compass somewhere. And and I think that's a reasonable expectation for, for people to achieve. And I think for young men, you know, who I imagine are a lot of your listeners, you know, if you have abilities and you have resources, stop giving your, uh, you know, your power and your, your ability to a uh, system that hates you. And figure out ways where you can exit it and find whatever the highest level of autonomy you can live with comfortably is. And, and try to do that with hopefully some friends you make. And if you can do that, I think that's the good life. 